Good morning, church. Good morning, husband. Let's, let's open with a word of prayer before we jump back into 3 John. Father, we thank you for this day and that we can all gather here and that we can study your word, your word that has been preserved for us, your word that is understandable to us. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the the many people who have put together tools that we can use to better understand your word. I pray that you would be with us today as we study your word, that you would guide us and direct us to a right and proper understanding of what is written. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we started in uh, workshopping a new a different text. We started in the book of 3 John last, last week. Oh, probably, let's see. So we started in the book of 3 John. Um, and we went through our various steps of observation. You know, as when we do inductive Bible study, the first thing that we do is we observe what's there in the text. Because how can we interpret if we don't know what's there? So it's just, it's noticing what's there. You know, the themes. We're, um, last week, Ken had passed out um, different trans, uh, copies of different translations. You know, the New King James, the CSB, the English Standard, and the New American Standard. And we compared across translations. You know, are there, are there any words that are translated differently? Um, that may contribute to a, a different understanding. Um, so, you know, we compared across translations to see, you know, are there any words that, that maybe different translations translate differently that, that might illuminate, you know, is there a textual difficulty? Is there a translation um, difficulty? Is there a significant word that may be present here that, contributes to our understanding of the text. So, and we noticed that there were several, several differences, possibly across the translations, that not, not significant differences, but just translation choices that the translators made across the translation. So, you know, um, one translation, I believe, was the King James, or they had it prosper. The English standard had it translated as go well with you. Um, efforts accomplished due, you know, testified versus born witness, referencing Gentiles versus pagans. You know, are there, you know, there were translation choices that were made based on the underlying text that may give us some type of insight that, hey, there, there may be something significant here that would contribute to our understanding of what this text means. So after we compare translations, we ask questions of the text in 3 John. You know, who is the elder? Who's Gaius? Why did he write? Who are the strangers? We asked about different things, you know, about diotrephes, diotrephes, yeah. Emphasis on the wrong syllable. I did butcher that. Um, you know, is he apostate? You know, is he a false teacher? 
Um, we also asked, how does this relate to other writings of John? You know, are there similar themes that pop up throughout John's writings, not just here, that may give us clarification? Um, and is, is John writing as, this is an example, is he giving an example of what we should imitate? After we asked the questions of the text, we identified significant terms. You know, the phrase, in the truth and truth, show up significant, a significant number of times in a very short, you know, very short text. You have 15 verses, it shows up a lot um, in today's in today's questions, as we're going through interpretation, we'll get more into just how many times does the word truth or variation of the word truth show up. Um, this, just simply the number of times that the word truth or variations of the word truth in the truth, walk in truth, show up, should probably give us an idea that, hey, truth is a pretty important concept to John here as he's writing. No, no, it, it also talks, yeah, it talks about the truth as an absolute. There was a difference between um, different translations where it talks about that with diatrophies, who doesn't receive us um, in the King James versus in the CSB, it says he doesn't receive our authority. So maybe this is a significant term. There's a lot of bring up, call to mind, bring attention to, remind him. The phrase to imitate shows up. So these are probably significant terms. And some of these significant terms were identified by differences in translations. We spent time on the literary features. You know, what, what are some of the features that show up? We talked about there's repetition, truth, testimony shows up a lot. Um, there's an escalation that happens with Diotrephes. First he doesn't accept, then he spreads slander, then he's unwelcoming, and then he's putting people out. There's a contrast by, between Diotrephes and Demetrius. You know, Diotrephes, is, you know, he's putting people out, he's stirring up conflict, as opposed to Demetrius, who, who there's a good testimony by all. He's a, he's a good person. Um, there's different conjunctions showing that there's relationship. There's tone differences between at the beginning and the end versus in the middle. So just the structure of the text should give us an idea of where's the meat of what John is getting at. Because John, the third John is written as a letter. You know, when we talk about what's the structure of a letter, you know, there's your greeting, and when you write a letter, you say, you know, hello, dear so-and-so. Then do you get right into the meat of it? You no, know, usually there's some kind of opening remarks, some salutations, and we see that. You know, I'm, I'm glad to hear all is, I'm glad to hear things are well with you, that you're walking in truth. Well, then he gets into the core of what he's getting at. You know, there's, there's some of the conflict going on. Then he wraps things up. You know, I had many things to write. And then he closes out. So it's written like a standard letter. Does this tell us, does this give us information about how we should interpret this text? It should. 
And then there's the different units. And this is kind of tying back to the structure of it's a letter. There's the greetings, the personal notes, commendation, condemnation, condem er, commendation, and then he wraps it up. So that's what we did last week. We identified just what's there in the text. We really didn't jump in a whole lot into interpreting what's there as much as what's there for us to interpret. We can't interpret what we don't know is there. We really have to spend the time and wrestle in the text to identify what's there. And some of it is really obvious as to what's there, but sometimes we really need to ruminate on a text to really see what's there. I know for myself that, you know, identifying words, you know, significant terms, that's a pretty straightforward thing. You know, that you can zoom in really close on a verse and you say, oh, this, this word seems to carry the meaning of the text. But when we zoom back out and start identifying, well, this is the structure of it. This, here's the parallelism. Here's, you know, here's the inclusios. Here's the different literary structures. I know for me personally, that's something I have to spend more time in. And yet, once, once I've identified that, there's a richness in the text that comes out because I've seen something in the text that I didn't see before. So today, you know, so last week, like I said, we wrapped up observations, so we move into, we move into interpretation today. Okay, that didn't move things in all at once. Okay. Um, so we have to consider different kinds of context. And this is in part observation, just what's the context that's there. But the reason we're considering context is because context should help us understand what are the guardrails of our interpretation. What's the situation? Is there a, is there a geopolitical context that seems to be evident within... Third John? Is he writing about events that are going on? Is there geography that appears to be important? Is there a political setting that he seems to be referencing that gives us any type of understanding about what's going on or why he might be writing this? Yes, no, maybe so. Ah, but long story short, there really is no, there's no geopolitical context that's present. You know, we're not, it's not making reference to an emperor. It's not making reference to leaders in the synagogue. It is making reference to a leader within the church, and there may be, or at least someone who's trying to put himself out there as a leader in the church. So maybe there's, there's, political machinations on a micro sense of what's going on within that particular church to which John is writing. But we're not really seeing any big picture geopolitical stuff. So stuff that's going on geopolitically probably isn't really influencing a whole lot of what's going on. Are there situational contexts? Is there author, audience, reason for writing? Is that apparent from what we've seen in the text? You know, and in part to identify this, think about the structure of the text 
that we identified that, you know, there's, it's structured as a letter. There's, there's your greeting, there's your introductory remarks, there's your closing remarks. But within the closing remarks, there's also, or between the opening and the closing, there's the guts. And when we get into the guts, we see that inclusio. Well, that inclusio probably should give us an idea of what's, what's the situation that he's writing about. Well, so he's, he's commending them for supporting the brothers. Then we see in 9, then he introduces this conflict, you know, Diotrephes, who's divisive, stirring up conflict. Ken had made the observation last week that it seems very much to be a cult of, kind of this quasi-cult of personality. Of, um, he wants, you know, Diotrephes wants to be first. He's not receiving us or he's not receiving our authority. You know, he's, he's slandering us and he's kicking anybody out who supports us. So basically, he's getting rid of everyone he perceives to be his opposition, and he's putting himself first. Yeah, that seems like probably a reason to be writing a letter. <laughs> you, you, you've got something going on in this church that could destroy the church. So we've got a situational context going on there's this very divisive individual who's not receiving apostolic authority, who's not receiving the apostles, who's slandering the apostles, and who's putting anybody out who, who he's putting anybody out who receives the apostles. Yeah, this is, this is not someone who's healthy for a church. And John's John says as much, you know, if I come, I'm going to remind him of what he's doing. I'm going to call to mind. I'm going to point out what he's doing. So it's enough that John, that John is saying, you know, I'm going to address this if I come. Is there a cultural context? You know, are, do there seem to be, you know, cultural, cultural terms, cultural mores, cultural, you know, different customs evident within the text that, that could expand our understanding of what's going on here. Right. Right. Well, and in that word "strangers," that could be that could be an important term to remember later on. You know, does does "strangers" mean that oh, you don't, you have absolutely no idea who this person is, or does "strangers" mean you know you may not know this per you may know of this person. Ooh. Pardon me. 
You may know this person, but they're not someone who's regularly among you. What does that, what does that word strangers mean? What's the genre of this, of this writing? What, it's a letter. Is it, but what type, you know, so when we talk about letters, is it, what type of letter is it? Yeah. Is, yeah, is it a letter of warning? Is, is John writing a love letter to someone that we've just happened to find? Oh, hey, well, John wrote it, so. My, or is there, is it, an, is it epistolary in nature? There's, there's a letter of warning, but there's also a letter of encouragement. But is, it's not a letter like we would see, so say, in the, the pastoral letters that Paul wrote, you know, where Paul is giving instruction on the operation of a church, you know, elders, pastors, uh, or elders, deacons, you know, the structure roles within the church. We don't see that in here. But there's, there definitely is a conflict within the church that needs to be addressed. How does this relate to the rest of Scripture? Is, this, is, the, is the letter of 3 John entirely unique within Scripture? There's nothing else like it. Or are there other, are there other books in Scripture, or other sections of Scripture that are pretty similar in nature? Does it have, is there a tie-in elsewhere? Yeah, so there's a, there's a huge tie-in with this concept of truth, walk in the truth, know the truth, stay in the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is all of, and not just the New Testament canon, but in the Old Testament canon as well. You know, all throughout the Psalms, all throughout the prophets, truth If you flip back in your Bibles, for most people, it's just one or two pages back to the, the letter of 2 John. 2 John reads almost exactly like 3 John. In fact, it even opens up the same way. There's some of the same words present. You know, in 3 John, so I'm in the ESV, it opens up to the elder, and, er, the elder to the beloved whom I love in truth, well, Second John, to the elder and to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. So he's writing to a different person. It opens up the same way. In Second John, he's talking about, yeah, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Well, he says the same thing. I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. So, even within the writings of John, you know, just like I said, just one letter previously in 2 John, there's a tie-in. Okay, so there's probably some context here that can help us understand what's going on in 3 John. Again, truth. Is there surrounding context? 
diatrophies. <laughs> yeah. But so surrounding context is going to be like what comes before, what comes after. Well, here, no, because we're looking at the letter as a whole. <laughs> yeah, there's, I mean, canonically, there's stuff that comes before and stuff that comes after, but within this letter itself, we're looking at the whole letter. So there's not really surrounding context. That was a trick question. Are there themes and motifs that show up? Well, truth again. <laughs> Walking in truth. Um, imitating. Interestingly enough, there was a phrase that I caught and it only stuck out to me because it's the same phrase that shows up in, thir- in 2 John as well. I had much to write you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. That exact phrase shows up in 2 John. Well, yeah, what does that mean? Does he mean, does he mean well, I just don't have a lot of resources, so I don't want to waste space. I'll just talk to you when I get there. Is it, a, yeah, is it of a private nature? Or is he writing to a church that's being persecuted and he doesn't want to put too much down unless the letter is intercepted? Because, so historical context, we think, we don't, we don't know, but we think John was writing these letters at about the end of the first century. This would have been during the Diocletian persecutions. One of the one of the most severe persecutions of Christians in the Roman history. Um, could, could John be writing in that way of, I don't want to put too much down on, on paper because it could, end, it could end up badly. Maybe, we don't know. We're, we're not really provided any type of context as to what he means there other than, whatever John was saying here, this isn't all he has to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we don't really know. And it doesn't seem that John makes a terribly big deal about it in his letter because it's in his closing. Are there other themes and motifs that show up here? Yeah. Testify, testimony, bearing witness. Does this relate? So there, there's this theme, this, there's this idea of I'm, I'm bearing witness to something. What is he bearing witness to? What is he testifying to? Okay.
Is there any type of revelation or revelation historical context? Is there, is there new revelation in Third John that's not present elsewhere in Scripture, or is what's showing up in Third John? Have we seen this before? I mean, the idea of walking in truth, truth, definitely has shown up throughout Scripture a lot. We've seen elsewhere in Scripture, not just necessarily in the writings of John, but we've seen elsewhere in the New Testament where divisive individuals have shown up in the church and that it's not a good thing. So, you know, this idea, you know, Diotrephes, you know, behaving how he's behaving, we've seen that elsewhere. Not the first time we've seen that. There's not really anything in 3 John that we haven't seen previously in scripture there's not an, there's not additional revelation you know we we believe that god's revelation through scripture that it there is progressive revelation that it builds but we're not seeing anything new here if anything we're seeing a confirmation of what has been previously stated yeah yeah so we have we have a context that there's a conflict that's going on with Diotrephes. He's being divisive, maybe possibly setting up some type of uh, this cult of personality and kicking out everyone who, it, who is opposing him or is welcoming the apostles. Um, and related to that, this idea of truth seems to take great weight. Is that possibly some of the, some of what's going on with the conflict with Diotrephes that he's not accepting, that he's rejecting truth? He's not accepting the apostles. He's not welcoming the apostles. In fact, he's kicking out the apostles and anyone who welcomes the apostles. And if the apostles are bringing the truth of the gospel, yeah, so there may be a relationship. In fact, there seems to be very much a relationship between whatever this conflict is, this very divisive individual, and truth. Don't we struggle with modern day still? Sure. Yeah. Well, and that, that gets into application of, well, remember there's, you know, observation, interpretation, application, these are not clear-cut things. There, there's very fuzzy lines between that. So yeah, sometimes when we're talking about interpretation, we're going to cross that line over into application. There's a, there's a fluidity that happens between them. So yeah, we, we can probably think of many examples in the modern church of, oh, are there people in the church today who behave like John is describing Diotrephes' behavior 2,000 years ago. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I think that like, if we think for 20 seconds, yeah, we can probably think of a lot of, we can think of, sadly, a number of examples in the church where individuals have set up 
kind of this cult of personality and anybody who opposes me, I'm going to kick out. Anyone who supports people who oppose me, I'm kicking out. Well, so there may be some application or at least some type of modern day correlation with what's happening. So with this context, truth and whatever this conflict is really are zeroing in on the core of the meaning of this text is going to come from those two particular areas. So we talk about interpretive correlation. Remember this idea of interpretive correlation, again, serves as more guardrails of, you know, if we have phrases that show up, you know, this idea of walking in truth, you know, Walking in truth versus practicing truth. Walking in truth versus I am the truth. Love in the truth. It's probably going to mean the same thing each time that John uses it within the same writing. Now, it's more likely than not that any time John uses that phrase, even in any of the other writings, it's probably going to mean the same thing. That's, that's not a guarantee, but... So the reason we do interpretive correlation to see, okay, where is this showing up elsewhere in Scripture? Where are these phrases? Where are these ideas? Where are these words showing up? Is it sets the guardrails of how we interpret. Of my interpretation here of walking in truth, practicing truth, love in truth, should really not be all that different from other times that it shows up. And it maybe these phrases are not used clearly here, or they're not clarified, what does this mean here? But maybe it is in other places in Scripture. And that's going to help me understand what this means and set up guardrails so that I'm not interpreting this phrase wildly outside of what, of what it means, wildly outside of its, of its scriptural context. So there are these phrases, I'm just... I went through kind of briefly looking to see where these phrases show up contextually. You know, the phrase walking in truth shows up in verse 4 of 3 John, but it also shows up in the fourth verse of 2 John. Thank you. Walking in truth versus practicing truth shows up in 1 John. Is walking in truth and practicing truth the same thing? Is it being used in the same way? Well, we have in 1 John 1.6, he talks about, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Well, in 1 John, there's this idea of walk in darkness versus practicing truth. Is, is there a correlation there that walking in truth, practicing truth, may mean the same thing. I think there's an argument to be made that he's probably talking about the same idea. He may not be using exactly the same word, but the context of its usage in 1 John, walk versus, pra- walk versus contrasting with practice, gives the idea, or at least should give us the the idea that you know walking and practicing 
are probably conceptually the same idea for John. What does this mean when we, you know, in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the truth, and I'm walking in truth. Well, if Jesus is truth, what does it mean to be walking in truth, practicing truth? Well, that should... Should I be... It, is this telling me that my walking in truth, if Jesus is truth, is walking in truth? Does that mean I'm, I'm following Jesus? I'm imitating him? I'm doing? Is that, is that giving me clarification of what this phrase means to walk in truth? Knowing who, what truth is, or more accurately, knowing who truth is. <laughs> yes, not a trick question, I promise. Not a trick. Yes. Um, love in the truth. Well, again, I, I know what truth is, more accurately, who truth is. Ah. Yeah. So loving, loving in Christ. Loving as Christ loves. Yep. <laughs> so maybe this just became clear, but also maybe it became a little bit harder. It's like, oh, loving as Jesus loves. Well, interpretively that seems clear. Application, that's not always easy now, is it? We see a description of Diotrephes' behavior wanting to put himself first, not welcoming the apostles, slandering the apostles, putting people who support the apostles outside the church, we see his behavior. Do we see that behavior described elsewhere in Scripture? Yeah. Maybe we can cross-reference where we see, okay, like with what Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6 about false teachers. There's not a dissimilarity there, so when we're asking about Diotrephes, you know, the question that we had when we said asking the right questions, is Diotrephes apostate? You know, we see John say elsewhere, they went out from among us, but they were not of us. Is Diotrephes a false teacher? Well, I think the argument is probably, yeah, would, yeah, so would we consider him a false teacher or is this an invalid correlation? Because again, we can draw correlations, but not all correlations are valid. How should we interpret, how should we understand Diotrephes' behavior? Is this someone who, he's a Christian, who's maybe just not quite on the right track, he's not really understanding things well, or should we understand him as, well, he's fully, he was never a brother to be, he may have been among us, but he was never a brother to begin with. It makes me think of 
Yeah. Driscoll. Yeah, Mark Driscoll. Um, where people say, well, technically he's biblically correct, but because of his behavior and his attitude, he's, his behavior and attitude isn't biblical. Yeah. His arrogance. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's an interesting modern correlation to see. But what, so when we look at the text of 3 John, we see that that John is not explicitly stating that he's teaching falsehoods. Because we've seen elsewhere in, in Scripture where the writer, Paul or John, will flat out say they're teaching a false gospel. Like, they're wrong. We're not seeing John flat out say he's wrong. But we are seeing John describe him, he's very divisive. He's a very conflictual person. He's stirring up strife, which is also very problematic. And we see that addressed elsewhere in Scripture. But so should we understand Diotrephes as apostate, that though he went out from us, he was never among us? Or should we understand him as someone who he's maybe a little errant, but he's still a brother? I don't know. I mean, you look at some of the writings of Paul. Paul has some very strong things to say about divisive individuals. He calls them false teachers. So. Yeah, well, a lot of it is we just may not have the information. Yeah. Because we don't know what ever happened to Diotrephes. Right. First and only time he's ever mentioned in Scripture. Yeah, it so much depends on does he repent. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, so this goes back to the contextual question of is that even a focus of John's writing? Is he apostate versus just a brother who's gone a little bit off track? Well, that doesn't seem to be a focus of John's writing. John's writing seems to be the fact how he's behaving right now is very divisive. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that, that could be it. so you know as you're going through your the interpretive process you got to make an exegetical decision on right. that that's a pretty key thing in that because if he is rejecting biblical doctrine well yeah he's a false teacher he needs and to it, and I think from the text there's a good argument to be made that that's the case with John's focus on truth walking in truth following truth testifying to truth and you, then you have this contrast with this person who's not welcoming of the apostles or their authority I think there's a good exegetical argument to be made just based on the structure that it, this, isn't, this isn't an interpersonal conflict he's having with the apostles this is a truth conflict he's having with the apostles Entirely possible. Yeah, so we have someone that 
quite possibly should be understood as a false teacher. But again, like Ken said, it's very much an exegetical decision on how you understand the did not receive our authority. There are ways to clarify in the Greek, but John doesn't do that here. In fact, in the Greek, the Greek, the Greek just says, if a literal rendering would be, he didn't receive us. But receive us could mean receiving us in person, or it could mean a more figurative, was not receptive to our teaching. And it's not really clarified in the text what that means. This will probably be the last place we touch on today. So we've identified interpretive correlation, these, these guardrails of how should this be understood. Then we go to their significant words and meaning of words and phrases that showed up. So this is where I said that this idea of truth shows up, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. No, yeah, seven times in 14 verses. Martyr. Martyr. Oh, there it is. Because yeah. okay. martyr literally translates as one who testifies. One who bears witness. So not also? No. Okay. But conceptually, testimony and truth are related to each other. to imitate, to follow, because that was used in a don't imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Are there other words as we zero in on truth and testimony really being probably the core? Aletheia. Yeah, Aletheia, or Aletheia, yeah, Aletheia. So, does, because this idea of testimony has the idea of I'm bearing witness to the truth. I'm bearing wit- I'm telling what is true. Is someone, yeah. So are there, are there other words that really understanding them can open up our, under, can open up the understanding of this text? Because they're really, you know, this idea of truth, yeah, Something that it's truth, reality, sincerity. It's unconcealed. You know, it's out there for everyone to see. This is demonstrable. But the unconcealed part of it, it has this idea of this is objective. I'm seeing it. You're seeing it. This is not hidden. I don't have, I don't have a secret knowledge. Yeah. I, don't, I don't have some secret knowledge known only to me. It's out there. It's undeniable. 
does that, does that expand or clarify our understanding of what we should understand this text to mean? Knowing how truth, or maybe even the semantic range of what truth can mean. No, options don't always clarify things. No. But that's, that can sometimes be one of the difficulties as we're interpreting a text is that sometimes our clarification raises more questions than it gives us answers. And so decisions need to be made. I think... Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's within a context, right? So that's words have meaning within a context. So as you begin to look at the context, you see what makes the most sense within that context for how a particular word is used. When you're comparing it with, with the way John uses the word in different places, that can increase your confidence level. And honestly, just practice. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of wealth of resources that are high quality, biblical, sound resources that can help us as well. Not that we're just taking whatever is written in a book as like, oh, hey, you know, this is this is true. But it, it does help, you know, and can help us to have that kind of confidence that we Well, in sitting down too, and this is where you know later on, and this will be, we'll get to this next week when we talk about. Con, you know, consulting, that, you know, it, it would be generally not great practice to consult only one commentary or one lexicon or one grammar for understand or one opinion because that's putting all the eggs in one basket that, you know, if this person is right, then hey, great. But what if they're not? What if, they, what if they're not understanding something properly? Or maybe they're not understanding it in an unnuanced way. But then you compare with a different commentary or a different scholar, and you start taking it all in. It's like, okay, I'm getting a better nuanced understanding of what this means to come to a more full understanding. Of what is this text trying to convey? And once I know what, does this, what is this text trying to convey, then there's the question, how does what applied to them then and there apply to me here and now? Because the meaning doesn't change. What it meant for them is what it means for me. How I apply it can look different. So I think we are at a stopping point for today, so... Let's close in a word of prayer.
Father, we thank you for this day, for this time once again that we can gather and we can wrestle with the truth of your word to, to rightly understand it. Again, thank you for your word and the, the wealth of resources that we have that, in your word that you have preserved for us. In Jesus' name, amen.